Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now you're welcome back to the uh, Irish Examiner Sports Podcast. Uh, sports podcast being a bit different in the last couple of weeks as we're traveling around the world talking to uh, Irish people involved in GA clubs and uh, getting a sense of how the coronavirus is impacting lives in their part of the world. So we're heading to uh, Stockholm in Sweden this morning. Delighted to uh, welcome uh, Philip O'Connor, who is the uh, chairman of the Stockholm Gales GA Club, also a very successful author and multimedia journalist, and uh, has all the studio equipment as well to set up, uh, awaiting on the other end. Uh, Philip, uh, thankfully, uh, we're not going to show the uh, video footage of this because you'd be putting me to shame with your state-of-the-art <laughs> studio in Sweden. Um, life different, uh, as we said uh, at this moment in time, but not as different as one would expect in Sweden. Yeah, I've been describing it as business as usual column with very little business being done. So Sweden doesn't have the same lockdown as other places around the world. So in Ireland, you're not allowed outside your house. If you're seen more than two kilometers away, there's murder and the police are telling you to go home and this kind of thing. But in Sweden, they, they, you know, that doesn't exist. So there's more guidelines than rules here. So you say to the Swedish people, right, we need you to stay home and work from home. And most of them, not all, but most of them will go, okay, we'll do that. That's the smart thing to do. So uh, schools up to the age of 16, pretty much kids are still going to school every day. Um, yeah, so, you know, again, I wouldn't say it's life as normal. If I look outside the little studio here, there's very little happening on the street. Really easy to get a parking space. No problem getting a seat in a restaurant or a pub, which are still open as well. So, yeah, it's a bit odd. And at the same time, then. Uh, we're being told, you know, uh, when we deal with the GAA back home, they're sort of saying, look, this is not a good idea. Don't have training sessions, don't have meetings and don't have games. And for us, that's a little bit unfortunate because we're only a few weeks away from the uh, the 10th anniversary of the first game of Gaelic football that was ever played in the Swedish capital. With all our sort of celebrations, certainly anything offline or in real life has had to be cancelled. So just following that point there, Philip, if you wanted to train now in Sweden, could you do it? You could 100%, right? So the guidelines at the moment from the Swedish uh, Public Health Authority are no gatherings of more than 50 people. They're actually advising people not to forget their physical health. They're actually telling you to go out and train. But they're also sort of saying that you have to have social distancing, right? And any Gaelic football I have ever played in my life has not had a whole lot of social distancing in it. I play as a full <laughs> forward most of the time. And, you know, I've had a fella standing in one leg of me shorts, you know? So that's not really sort of possible. So we went from the very beginning uh, with the guidelines from the GAA that said, look, at you know, let's just sort of push all this out. Let's not do anything. So there was supposed to be, we play, of course, on a tournament basis. So we have three tournaments in the Nordic Championship every year. We were due to be in Copenhagen on the 25th, which is almost bang on our 10-year anniversary of our first game. But that's been cancelled. So we decided to follow the GAA guidelines and not to have official training sessions. You know, we still have lads out running around Stockholm here where I'm sitting 
and they're reporting their runs and the distance and the time and that kind of thing. So lads are still training and soccer is still going on here. So the lower divisions, you know, you have the elite level of the professional and semi-professional. They're not being played. Those games are not being played. But on Friday night here, um, as we're talking, I think we're talking on Thursday, uh, this, the lower leagues are going to start, which is weird because you're not allowed to have a gathering of more than 50 people. So if you have, you know, two squads of footballers, that's around about 30, and then a couple of linesmen and a referee, all of a sudden, you know, you add in a couple of men and their dogs, and you're already up to 50 people. So I reckon it's going to be really difficult to police. So technically, we could train if we wanted to, but we're following the advice of the GAA now because, you know, basically we've no games to look forward to. And without that, we, we're sort of saying you're better off to train on your own and not to risk uh, getting the coronavirus. Right. What is the attitude amongst the general public or has the attitude amongst the general public changed over the last couple of weeks, given that Sweden seems to be a bit out of step with much of the rest of the world? Yeah, and proudly so, Colin, because, you know, they, they are looking at what the rest of the world is doing. Swedes are very pragmatic. We have what we call a consensus society here, where everybody agrees on the best way to go forward, a process that takes forever most of the time, and then they just go and do it. But they also have this thing where, you know, if you get a job in a responsible position, the process is so thorough that, you know, the follow-on from that is, this is the right person for the job, they know what they're doing, now shut up and get out of their way, you know? So you can question them a little bit, absolutely, but basically they're the person in control, in command, and you're supposed to sort of listen to what they say and take that on board and give it due weight, you know? So they're not really sort of looking at things the same way the rest of the world is. I see uh, our good friend Conor McGregor is out there looking for lockdown, no fruit pickers, no, nothing like that kind of thing. And the Swedes would say, well, there's no evidence for that. You know, they would have told me that we're long past that situation. When you had patient zero in Wuhan and China, then you could lock down that one person and the virus is not going to spread. But that was months ago. So all of those things are some of those things, certainly the Swedes are looking at them and saying there's no point. There's no evidence to back this up. There's no, there's no good reason for doing so. And in that case, we'll continue doing as we're doing. And if you want to have a good look at an example of that, take youth sport. So the Swedes would say that there's no evidence for children being super spreaders because this is the droplet-borne disease. And when it's a droplet-borne disease, it's spread by things like coughing and sneezing. So if they're saying that the evidence is that if a child doesn't have the symptoms, therefore they cannot spread the disease, right? I'm not saying that's right or wrong, and my opinion is entirely irrelevant, but the entire country here is saying, okay, if you're saying it's safe for children to be involved in sport, then let's keep them doing sport. Let's get them out of the house, get, get them into the fresh air, and get them doing exercise. So they're doing that. There's no, it, this has been a very mild winter here, so there's been virtually no snow on the ground at all. But the kids are outdoors with their gloves on and with their leggings on, and they're playing football and that kind of thing. And it's really difficult to say if you know it's the right thing to do, if it's the wrong thing to do. It'll be years before we know any of these things. But sport is kind of going ahead. Again, business as usual, but not a whole lot of business being done. Okay. In terms of fatalities and testing, what, what are the numbers like there, Philip? Um, fatalities are quite high. So what I tend to look at is uh, Denway, no uh, Denmark, Norway, and Finland, because you know similar societies, similar ways of doing things, not similar ways of counting, right? So I wouldn't say that the Swedes have tested as extensively as South Korea or Germany. In fact. It's not that I wouldn't say it, it just hasn't happened. They're thinking of ramping that up now just a little bit. Um, the deaths that have been recorded have been higher per head of population than Norway and Denmark. So Sweden would have twice the population of Denmark, but three times the COVID-19 deaths approximately. Finland has a very, very low rate. Finland would have a similar uh, population to Ireland or Denmark, but would have a, like, by far the lowest rate in the Nordic region. So the Swedes would say there's a number of reasons for that. It got into Swedish old folks' homes that little bit earlier, and they are people who unfortunately are in risk groups. If you end up in an old folks' home here, it's mostly because you can't look after yourself. 
So, you know, you're no longer living independently. You may have underlying health conditions. And that's no excuse, Colin. That's not to, in any way to suggest that those people are dispensable. What, it is, what I'm trying to say is that they will be very, very vulnerable to this happening. And when the disease gets in there, well, unfortunately, it does what this disease is going to do. And it's killing old people disproportionately. So that is definitely a failure in terms of the Swedish mitigation strategy. But for the rest of it, I'd say it's pretty similar to, you know, the, I'm following an awful lot of media in Ireland, in the UK, in America, but also throughout the Nordic region, in Danish and Swedish and Norwegian and I'd say they're pretty pretty similar you know again Swedish uh, deaths per capita slightly higher or in some cases uh, somewhat higher but I wouldn't say it's huge I wouldn't say it's at the point where you could say look at Sweden you're doing this completely wrong and you've got to back up the truck it, it, again it, it may be years before we know whether this strategy was right or not okay that's a very fair point is there a united front though amongst the political parties and the medical experts that this is the way to continue yeah, I mean, I'd say there's dissent, but not debate. And the thing about Sweden as well is that the, the state bodies, again, if you give responsibility to people, the state has a tendency to just get the hell out of the way. So the politicians don't, you know, they tried to set the policy, but it is like the regional health authorities who decide, and the state epidemiologist, uh, Anders Tegnell, is now the Elvis Presley of epidemiology in Sweden and beyond. And he's, you know, I don't know how many times I've interviewed him. He's sick of me asking him the same questions every day, you know. But th they will stand out of the way. They will not understand undermine him publicly. So, you know, they can fight all they like in back rooms and say, look, do you think this is worth doing? Do you think that? But he's the man calling the shots. So the politicians are staying out of the way. I'm hoping to speak to the Prime Minister in the next couple of days. And I know exactly what he's going to say. He's going to say, we're taking the best advice from the best people that we put in this situation. And that's just how it is. You know, so I think the people are very much, they bought into this. And that is very much a cultural thing. It goes back to that thing of trusting people to do the job that we're paying them to do. At its, at its core, Philip, is the viewpoint, uh, you know, you're looking at neighbouring Denmark, for example, that you could have a strict lockdown for four or five weeks, then you come out of it and you jump back to, to step one, square one again? Yeah. So what Tegnell and his colleagues would have told me over time is that th there is no cure for this. This virus is not going to be eradicated. It's not going to go away. The only way we're going to get rid of it is two ways. Like it basically, it's this thing of herd immunity that nobody ever says and that nobody wants to talk about. But herd immunity is what we now have against polio. Herd immunity is what we effectively have against measles, mumps, and rubella. The reason we have herd immunity for those things is partially because of isolation and mitigation, but it's also because of vaccines. So there's two ways of, of, uh, of getting a herd immunity. One is to let people get it and build up the antibodies themselves, and the other way is vaccines. So Sweden is essentially saying, without saying it openly, that this is what we have to do. So I asked Hignell about herd immunity. Is that what you're trying to achieve? And he sort of said no. And then a couple of sentences later, he said, look, at herd immunity or a vaccine, they are really the only solutions to this because the virus itself has gone sort of exponentially to a point where it's just not going to go away. We can't just put it in a freezer and it's going to die out. This thing is in some way going to exist with us for a long time to come. So, you know, it is... It's, it's a very hard thing to consider because we've seen in, in China and South Korea, certain places have opened up again and they've been shut down nearly as quickly because of the fact that the virus has broken out again. You know, so you talk about first three weeks, then four weeks, then five weeks. And again, it's this delicate balance. It's walking this tightrope between business as usual, life going on as normal, and actually containing what is a very, very virulent disease. Let's not forget how deadly this is. This is kind of like the flu, you know, in terms of the epidemiology, but it's 10 times more deadly, you know, and it spreads so much quicker. And that's the thing. And we're, we're also looking to scientists, column for answers. 
and they can't give us answers yet because they don't have them. All they can give us at the moment is a, you know, the opportunity to ask better questions. So, you know, that's what these guys are doing 24-7. They're considering this data, the changes, uh, the curves, not just over one, from one day to the next, but from one week to the next, or one month to the next. And again, the only thing that is really going to sort of contain and control this virus and get us to a point where we can live with it is time. And that's just something that we don't have at the moment. Okay, now, Philip, you know, you're a very intelligent man. You work in, in media. You're following what's happening in the other countries. Uh, you know, how do you tally your day-to-day -day life? You're being told one thing in Sweden, you're reading something else that's happening here in Ireland. You're reading um, an extreme lockdown in northern Italy. What, what, what's your middle ground in it all? Well, I'll go back to a mentor that I had, a great man called Pieter Stark, who was a, a Finnish-Swedish man. He was a Swedish speaker, uh, but born and raised in Finland. And I would say, and Peter would have said at the time, we don't have the answers. That's why we ask the questions. So my own personal opinion of it, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. All I know is what people tell me, you know, and I actually try to keep my own personal opinion out of things as much as possible. Because, again, I'm just going there to ask the questions that you and your readers and your listeners want to ask. It's not for me personally. I mean, I have my own worries column. I live in the area of Stockholm, which has been hardest hit in terms of infections. And our neighbouring parish, if you like, is the next hardest hit. And those two soccer teams are playing each other on Friday night, right? So... I have my questions about that as well. I have my worries. I'm not personally worried. I'm 48 years old and still able to go in there full forward and stick the odd ball over the bar. I'm fit enough and strong enough that I don't worry about this virus. My children are fine. My wife is fine. She works in a school, you know? So I don't worry for us personally, but I do worry for people I know. A broadcaster I know died yesterday, three years older than me at the age of 51. A photographer that I've worked with on many different occasions, on many different uh, events, he was 63 years old, I think, and he died, you know? And these would have been, you know, fine, fit, strapping men, you know, despite the age and that kind of thing. So on that level, I would have worries for people around me more so than myself. And one thing that I do worry about, and this brings us back to the GAA, is I worry about the mental health of the young Irish people that are playing with us and the young Swedish people that are playing with us in the Stockholm Gales. And we are very, very careful to be always there for them, especially those who are a little bit older. People like me have been here for a long time and speak the language, to be available to them and to explain this dichotomy that we're hearing about, because they're listening to Liveline and they're reading the Irish Examiner and they're seeing what's coming out of Ireland and Lombardy and Denmark. So we're trying to put that in context for them. But again, you know, I'd say I don't have the answers. Like the scientists say, I just have a better way maybe of asking a few questions. OK, let's finish on a high. Talk to me about the GA club, as you said, just coming up on 10 years. What's the makeup in terms of Irish nationals? Um, it's an interesting one because on, on the men's side, it's not exclusively Irish, but it's pretty much Irish. We just discovered a fantastic Kenyan dual player, hurler and footballer, grew up in the ring, so his Irish is better than most of us, but he's born in Kenya. So he was brought over there. Uh, he was actually a development player in Waterford, that kind of thing. So he is one of those players who has come into the club at the start of this season, but not yet been able to pull on the Stockholm Gales jersey. So we have a lot of young lads who are coming through now. There's a lad over here working for Jemison, people working for state agencies, people working working for First Derivatives, a Northern Irish company who are working in banking and uh, risk management here. Um, we, so we've loads of those people. We've loads of partners coming in. We've Swedes coming in who just picked up the sport. They see it as somewhat, almost like an extreme sport, but they pick it up and they play it. But on the ladies' side, it's almost 50-50. So Olympic handball would have been a big sport here. It's uh, it's tough. You go in there, you know, you have the six or the nine meter line and you're trying to sort of battle for people. So girls who like tougher physical sports, they're really taken to Gaelic football. We have a Spanish basketball player who's wonderful. Uh, the winning goal in the championship last year was scored by a Swede called Julia Shelson. 
And she'd played the game in the beginning. She was a volleyball player, I think, to begin with, you know. And it was just amazing to see someone who spent, you know, six or seven years playing with us, delivering the championship at the, in the last minute of the last, like literally in, in extra time of the last game of the season. It was just incredible. So it's a really vibrant club. We've a lot of good support here. We've a lot of good sponsors who unfortunately are suffering as well. And they would be pubs and restaurants, but also Irish businesses. So we're doing our best to help them out, you know. Again, the restaurants are open, so we go in there, one or two of us, and have a drink and just try to keep things ticking over. So, you know, it's it's good. I'm not worried about the club at all. Uh, I usually say with clubs abroad, the future of our club is with people whose names we don't yet know. And we have to keep trying to attract them. We have to keep giving them something more than just football and a little bit of hurling. We have to give them a sense of place, a sense of belonging. And in times like this, we have to give them a sense of security. And when we can't play, Colin, one of the things I decided to do was, I'm not sure you know, but I wrote a book 10 years ago with the first season in the club called The Parish Far From Home. And I'm now recording that as an audio book because I understand that you know people are looking for content. They're looking for ways to, to fill their time. And this is a different story. It's not exactly the story of any, of any Irish club, of any club maybe down near you in Cork or near me in Dublin. But it's something to consider, you know, the different perspective that you get when you join in with the GAA abroad. So that's there. It's free for anybody to listen to. It's on SoundCloud as well. 